welcome to News in Focus with your host, Chris Long, president of the Ohio Christian Alliance. Stay tuned for an analysis and conversation about the issues that matter most to you and your family. Here now with this week's edition of News in Focus is Chris Long. Well, good afternoon and welcome to this edition of News in Focus. This week, of course, we celebrated President's Day. And in recent years, President's Day has evolved into something that it wasn't originally to be intended. Uh, As President's Day, of course, used to be, when we were growing up, a time in which we recognized the birthday of George Washington and the birthday of Abraham Lincoln. In recent years, it has fallen into the, the mirage or morass of just any president of your liking, but that wasn't the original intent of President's Day. Well, this week uh, of the Ashbrook Center, Jeffrey Sakinga, who is the executive director of the Ashbrook Center, a constitutional studies program of Ashland University, and uh, you've heard about this program in the past on this program. Of course, uh, Sylvia and I, our daughter, was a graduate of the Ashbrook Center, and they've sent out uh, students of note throughout the years, uh, and it's a great constitutional studies program there in central Ohio. Well, we're going to talk about the author, about the uh, article that was put out this week about President's Day, and what it really is to be, a reflection about two, two distinctive presidents, not just any president. With me on the phone is Jeffrey Sakinga, again, the executive director of the Ashbrook Center. So, uh, Jeffrey, uh, as we talked about, it, whether it's uh, t- uh, any president or two specific presidents, explain. That's right. In, in recent years, you're absolutely right, Chris. Um, I mean, most people nowadays know President's Day for furniture sales, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, it's been commercialized like so many of our public holidays in ways that were definitely not intended by the authors of, of these days. And, and really, it has become called President's Day. It didn't used to be called that. Um, it was thought of as, you know, George Washington's birthday and Abraham Lincoln's birthday. And they were celebrated separately. Started with Washington's birthday way back in the late 1800s. And then Lincoln was added to that. So it was, as you say, a day to honor specifically those presidents because they stand out for America as being particularly great presidents who deserve our, a moment in our national life for us to pause, to think about them, and to, to contemplate what made them so great. What were their qualities that we should really be thinking about and even emulating and studying as American citizens? You know, your email from the center got me thinking about that, and as we grew up, it was about George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. Of course, George Washington, our first chief executive, our first president, uh, when it was uh, his vice president, uh, John Adams, was trying to think about a more noble or distinguished name or title for the president. (laughs) He was rebuked by uh, George Washington. He said, Mr. President will be fine, Mr. Adams. Uh, he wanted to to add to it, Your Excellency, the President, and these kinds of things. And, of course, what he knew uh, at the time uh, with our Constitution and the balance of powers is that in this first experiment in hi- in human history, up until that time, we've always served under some type of uh, uh, monarchy, some type of emperor. Uh, there was never a time in where the individual citizen was the was the prince or king of their own lives. But under this American Republic, each citizen guides their own destiny. The president is one of the three branches of the government of equal balance and power, 
and is to submit the presidency, as we just saw that exchange take place just a few weeks ago. And uh, so, in fact, after George Washington stepped down after his second term, it was uh, King George who said, if he does that, he truly will be the greatest man in the world, because who surrenders power? So I agree with you, recognizing both our first executive, our uh, George Washington, and then Abraham Lincoln. And you spent some time talking about Abraham Lincoln. Tell us a little bit about that and why that we should focus on uh, Mr. Lincoln. Well, Mr. Lincoln followed George Washington as his um, model. And, and he saw in Washington, Chris, exactly what you saw, that Washington understood that the presidency um, was, a first of all, a constitutional office that he was supposed to, you know, protect pretend, uh, protect and defend the Constitution of the United States, and that it is a constitutional office that is subject to the rule of law and supposed to promote the rule of law, which was very important and near and dear to the heart of George Washington. So it's a constitutional office, not simply a popular office, um, as we sometimes think of it today. And also, it was a, a small-r Republican office, as you put it. Um, George Washington's greatness lay in the fact that while he was really a great man who literally stood above his fellows, but also figuratively stood above his fellows, he was committed to a republic, and he was committed to the idea, as you said, that ordinary people really can govern themselves. He was committed to the American experiment in self-government. And Lincoln knew that. He had studied Washington, Washington's life and career, and Lincoln I argue in that piece, was committed to the same principles, to the Constitution and to the Republic, and obviously had to navigate uh, extraordinarily difficult circumstances, uh, trials like our country never saw before and fortunately has really never seen since, and hopefully uh, we will never see again. But those, that kind of severe trial, he always looked to those principles of the Constitution and of the Republic to guide him. And in that, he knew he was following in the tradition of George Washington. When we think about uh, Abraham Lincoln, of course, um, he was uh, raised in poverty, uh, you know, first in Kentucky, then in Illinois. He was truly self-educated, uh, but he came from very humble beginnings. And for him to become president, he said, where else in the world can this happen but in the United States of America? Uh, elaborate on that for us, if you would. Oh, that's that's really true. Um, again, a lot like George Washington. Um, Lincoln was a self-made man. He was raised in a, uh, his family moved around a lot. He was raised in a one-bedroom log cabin in the wilderness of Kentucky for part of his life. As you said, he really had almost no formal education. He he borrowed books. Um, his, his mother, who uh, w- could not read although she memorized um, the King James Bible, large parts of it, and she would walk around their house um, uh, talking scripture out loud uh, to to Abraham in the household. And so he learned English by listening to and eventually reading Shakespeare and the King James Bible. So when people look at Lincoln's speeches and wonder where did some of those influences come from, some of that beautiful language, it comes from not just his study of America, but his, his deep knowledge of the scriptures and, and of great poetry like Shakespeare. But he taught himself all of that. 
and he raised himself up. He studied law himself. Uh, he didn't go to any law school and built that knowledge himself. Uh, he was a remarkable, uh, remarkably uh, intelligent, dedicated student who was also his own teacher. You know, I uh, was reading his second inaugural, which, of course, was a very short speech. Um, and, of course, it was still in the midst of the Civil War. Towards the end of the Civil War, of course, the North was winning at that point, and they were making their advances uh, on the southern cities. I'm reading from it where it says, Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled up by the bondsmen, 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn by the lash shall be paid by another drawn by the sword. As we said 3,000 years ago, so still must it be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, with malice towards none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us the right, let us strive to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow, and for his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves with all nations. You know, when we think about it, people just don't talk like that today, Jeff. It's beautiful, isn't it? It, it really is, is beautiful. Uh, and, and look, you can, you can hear the biblical echoes there. Uh, the book of James, talking about widows and orphans, for example. Uh, that's from the first chapter of James. The quotation of the right, judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether from the biblical text. Um, they don't talk like that, unfortunately, anymore. Um, you know, but the thing is, they didn't simply talk like that in Lincoln's day either. It's not as though everybody sounded like Lincoln. Lincoln was special even in his own day. And it wasn't special just because it sounds high-minded. He was capable of saying a lot with a very few amount of words. He was a deep student of language. Like I said, he loved to read out loud and listen to how language sounds. And he got that again from his mother doing that with the King James Bible in his own home. And he became a master of condensing a lot of meaning into as few words as possible and talking straightforwardly right at people. And, and so they understood, even if it's elevated language, the people who were, he was speaking this to and would, who read this in the newspaper would have understood what he was saying. We're talking with Jeffrey Sakinga. He is the executive director of the Ashbrook Center, a constitutional studies program, political science department at Ash. Ashland University. Uh, this is a program that uh, is very similar to some of the studies at Hillsdale College. You know, we often talk about how um, Ashbrook isn't as well known as Hillsdale. Of course, they just have a better promotions department. But when we think about the students that you have sent forth and the great work that they've done over the years from the Ashbrook program, uh, it really is uh, heralded in Washington, D.C., uh, because there's been so many students that have come from the program that have gone on to do really tremendous things. Your thoughts? We have wonderful uh, graduates. <laughs> you, you know a few of them yourself, <laughs> your daughter being one of our, our finest. Um, we really have had some great students. And, 
look, they go out and do wonderful things in the world in Washington, D.C., of course, but not just Washington, D.C., in Columbus, in their counties, in their local governments and towns. We really believe at Ashbrook that being a principled leader does not just mean um, you know, serving in the White House, although our students have served in the White House, and we honor that. Uh, it means taking a position of, of leadership in your families, in your communities, in your churches, and, and where people actually live. Again, that's we believe firmly in self-government. And that means uh, communities and families and, and civic organizations governing themselves, too. So we're delighted when our students go out and do those kind of really good things in the world. You know, uh, Peter Schramm, of course, uh, was well-known in the program for many years as the executive director. Uh, he served in the Reagan administration. He had a great personal uh, history and storyline himself. Uh, he passed away a few years ago. I think he'd be very proud to see what has happened with the institution that's continuing, uh, that he spent so much of his time and dedication to. Uh, what do you think he would say concerning today's political environment, and what would he say to the students? I think he would say that we desperately need to return to the fundamental principles of our founding that we are really in danger of losing an understanding of those, of what has made America an exceptional country, the kind of country that led Peter and his family to leave Hungary when the communists took over and come to America where they could be free. Uh, we need to restore those principles. I know Peter believed this profoundly, and we continue to uphold that mission of restoring those principles in the hearts and minds of our fellow Americans. It, he, he got us off on that mission, and we're continuing that good work. And, and we're doing it with students uh, on campus here at Ashland University. We bring students from around the country, high school students, in for summer programs on this. We have an outreach to teachers, uh, both here on campus with a master's program that we started now about 15 years ago. And we do seminars around the country on these great principles and documents with teachers. And we reach out to citizens and have citizen programs as well. It's a multifaceted, multi-pronged approach, but it's the same mission to educate our fellow Americans in the history of our country and in our founding principles. And I, I think we share Peter's conviction that America needs it. We've always needed it, but man, we really need it now more than ever. I'm so pleased that you're having in-person classes. Uh, your institution has, from the beginning of this year, uh, even during the COVID uh, challenges. And so that's good to know that uh, the students are receiving in-person uh, instruction this year at uh, the Ashland uh, Ashbrook program. Uh, of course, the uh, dinner that's annual, things have been a little different during COVID, of course. Are you planning to have your dinner this year as well? We certainly are hoping to, yes. Well, we plan to have it sometime in the fall, and we'll be releasing information on that as the time gets closer. And want to invite everybody to, to join us and attend. And of course, they're always welcome to come to campus here in Ashland and, and uh, be with our teachers and our students and see the program or join us online. We have all kinds of online programs, um, which they can find out about by going to our website. Again, that's ashbrook.org. Uh, and of course, you can sign up for the email list. I receive those alerts as well. And it lets me know when there's going to be 
uh, a lecture at the institution that's open to the public, uh, or they, you know, over the years they've had the lunches. Uh, are you having some of the lunches now, or most of it's virtual? What's happening now during the COVID? Right now, it yeah, right now it's virtual. Um, and again, it, it's uh, we want to be in person as much as possible, but size limitations because we usually have so many uh, folks who attend. Size limitations aren't aren't allowing us right now, but people can still join us online for our webinars, and we've we've just done did a number of those. In fact, one on President's Day on Abraham Lincoln with Professor Lucas Morell. So um, we're still continuing those, but we plan to be back in the fall in person, and we will welcome everybody on campus. Again, we're talking with Jeffrey Sakinga. He is the executive director of the Ashbrook Center, a constitutional studies program at Ashland University. What? Uh, how, when was the program first launched? Well, we, we were inaugurated in 1983 by President Ronald Reagan. We started our first uh, class of Ashbrook scholars here on campus in 1984, and we had about a hundred. Uh, we had about 20 or so, and now we have over 120. So we've grown exponentially, and our teacher program started with just a dozen teachers or so, and now we have over 300 in the master's program. So. Since 1983, uh, we've been on a real growth trajectory. We know the country needs this kind of history and founding principles education, and uh, we're happy to provide it to the students, teachers, and citizens. Wonderful. Let's talk about the master's program. This uh, You're in your 15th year of the master's program. Uh, we've heard some great successes with that program. Of course, here in Ohio, we do have a Founding of American Documents curriculum Actually, Peter Schramm, I'm looking at his picture on the wall here, when uh, Gov- then-Governor Kasich signed it into law uh, back in 2012. And it is a required program of studies in Ohio uh, high school classrooms of American government, American history. Uh, and that's uh, one full credit hour for each with an end-of-course exam. And uh, basically learning the founding documents of our country, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, uh, the Ohio Constitution Northwest Ordinance, uh, and the Federalist and Anti-Federalist Papers, uh, again, uh, in every Ohio classroom from the 8th through the 12th grade with an end-of-course exam. Well, I've had to kind of fight for that as time has gone on. Last uh, session, we had an effort to minimize the, t- the testing requirement, but thankfully that was derailed, and we were successful in retaining the studies. Uh, similar to what President Trump was talking about with the 1776 project. Um, but right now, American history is under assault, uh, and our governmental studies across the country. Uh, address that for a few minutes. Well, there's no question that's true, and I appreciate your leadership uh, on the uh, Ohio primary documents bill uh, That's and the fight to retain that. It's so important for young Ohioans, and, and we at Ashbrook stand completely behind the effort to keep that in our schools. Um, you're right that it's a, the situation is really serious. There's a lot of people out there. Your, your listeners have no doubt heard of the 1619 Project put forward by the New York Times as an attempt to completely reframe American history as a story of oppression and not freedom, uh, falsely distorting all kinds of important facts about American history and principles to do so. There's that. And then I think there is a, a general movement away in a lot of schools, unfortunately, in the, in the amount of time that's spent on history and government in favor of other subjects. 
And those other subjects might be important, but as we always say, um, no matter what you do in life, you will remain a citizen. And so you have to have the knowledge and the principles and the understanding that good citizens need. So we are engaged in that fight to keep uh, American history focused on our fundamental principles, focused on the idea that the, the story of America Look, we have to admit our mistakes honestly. We have to admit our failures honestly. But we also have to understand that those are mistakes and failures in living up to our noble founding principles. And that the story of America is really the story of the struggle to live up to those principles of freedom. And we need that message in our schools. And you're right, unfortunately, um, by, by neglect or by hostility now, that is under assault. It is, and uh, there are many people that are concerned and are monitoring it and being vigilant, I think, to start to have a dialogue. These discussions are taking place on local school boards, our state school board, uh, and in the Ohio legislature. Of course, the Ohio legislature is the one that passes uh, the curriculum standards. The state school board can only offer recommendations, but again, many times, the state school board offering recommendations or passing resolutions then become applicable to the local school districts. And when you have home rule and autonomous school districts, that's where these things take seed, like the 1619 project. And I just received another alert today that uh, this is another problem where it is advancing in school districts across the state uh, in, in, in difference to what the state school board or what the legislature desires. So, uh, parents need to be aware of that. You need to be in tune to what your child is learning or not learning and uh, be be engaged. And so that's part of what we encourage at the Ohio Christian Alliance in our educational platform. We just have a couple minutes left, Jeff, uh, and I want to have you back on because the program and what you're doing uh, and the type of student that uh, maybe would be looking to come to the Ashbrook Center, just give you about uh, a minute and a half of that about a student looking to come to your your program. Yeah, that's a great question. We're, we're looking for students who care about our country and our students, not just uh, great intellects, um, but also people of character and who want to be around students, other students of character who are public spirited, who care about their communities, who care about their country, who want to understand these principles and what it really means to be an American and who understand what a blessing it is to have been born in this country and to be part of this country and to have the, the honor, the privilege of being called American. Those are the kind of students we're looking for. And we are delighted to sit around and open the great texts of American history and politics with them. The Federalist Papers you mentioned, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, the speeches of Washington and Lincoln, all of these great statesmen, and dig really deeply into this question of what it means to be an American. Thank you, Jeff, for being my uh, guest today. And again, that's ashbrook.org. That's ashbrook.org. Thanks for being my guest today. Thank you for having me. God bless. And again, the fine work at the Ashbrook program. You can learn more by going to their website at ashbrook.org. And also, if you've missed any of this interview, you can hear it in its entirety at our website at ohioca.org. Stay tuned. We'll be right back on the other side after these messages.
Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. And the soldiers who stormed the beaches of Normandy and the Allied liberation of Europe. On D-Day, all those warriors set out on their mission. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt led our nation in prayer. The D-Day Prayer Project is an effort to add FDR's D-Day Prayer in its entirety at the World War II Memorial in Washington, D.C. This wonderful historical presidential prayer will be a lasting tribute to our World War II veterans. If you'd like to make a contribution towards the effort of adding this prayer to the memorial, go to the website at ddayprayerproject.org. That's ddayprayerproject.org. I'm Johnette Cruz, and I'm a busy mom. Then a friend told me about TrustBlueReview.com, a new website powered by the Christian Blue Network. She uses it to find trusted Christian-owned businesses. I checked it out, read the helpful reviews, and found a great family dentist. Now I use TrustBlueReview for all my family's needs. For peace of mind, do what I did. Visit TrustBlueReview.com or download their free mobile app from your app store today. The trusted source for all you do. Trust Blue Will my kids like this dentist? Can I trust this mechanic? Who's a good choice for my upcoming remodel? I found businesses I can trust from TrustBlueReview.com. This company rebuilt our deck and renovated our bathroom. I'd highly recommend them to anyone looking to hire an honest contractor. The best dentist experience I've ever had. It's now easy to find trusted businesses in my community that have the same Christian values as my family. It all starts at TrustBlueReview.com or download their app in the App Store today. The trusted source for all you do. Trust Blue Okay, and we're back. Uh, we're going to talk about an important article that just popped up uh, this week, and it's written by Leo Homan. He is a veteran investigative reporter and author whose recent books include Stealth Invasion, uh, spent the majority of 2017 among Amazon.com's top 10 books. Uh, he's also been on WorldNet Daily, uh, Front Page Magazine, Drudge Report. Uh, he's been on uh, radio pro- uh, television programs of uh, radio programs of Larry Elder and Laura Ingram and others, and on Fox News. So uh, we're going to talk with him about this article that is fascinating because right now we are at a time as the as Christians in the midst of this culture uh, challenge that's in front of us. Whether you want to just say it's COVID nineteen, but it's really demonstrating so many other things right now, in which we're going to have to break from. Uh, it's been a year now that we've been into COVID protocols here in Ohio and across the nation, and it's time for us to start to think independently. Uh, you know, th- this has gone on for far too long. And you're talking to someone, actually, uh, who had COVID back in December. Uh, in fact, for- 14 members of my family had COVID, and we all recovered. Uh, we've had board members that have gotten COVID, and we know people that have actually gotten COVID and passed away. That's true. Uh, it is serious, but at the same time, uh, you know, we need to move on with our lives. We can't continue to have the casualty list, and we're going to list them. We've talked to you on this program that in the coming weeks, uh, we're going to talk with pastors in roundtable discussions about the opiate addiction alcohol explosion problem that's happening here in the state of Ohio and across the country. Uh, also, clinical depression among the general populace. Suicide rates are skyrocketed. We've already put in request through the Ohio legislature to get the suicide rates of 2019 and 2020. And unfortunately, folks, 
the casualty list is going to be high. And so what must we do as Christians? Well, we need to think clearly. We talked about that at the beginning of this year, how we need to think clearly and and with discernment. And this article that uh, Leo has written really talks about some of those issues that we're facing right now. Uh, Leo, tell us a little bit about the article, Western Civilization is Imploding, Now is the Time for All Good Men to Make Their Stand. Explain. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Chris. Um, I just got the feeling, uh, just uh, through the normal functions of living my normal life, that we may be we may be getting close to the point where if we don't push back on some of these regulations and restrictions, that it it may end up being too late. Um, They're already becoming habit. Uh, When people, first it's an annoying regulation, then it's kind of something you mumble about and wish you didn't have. But after a few weeks and months go by, and now we're almost at a year that these things have been in place, it it get, becomes to be ingrained, and I've talked to a lot of people who tell me they don't even realize they have their masks on anymore, and that that really jolted me um, because the mask to me, uh, people can say, well, it's just a mask. You you hear that a lot. It's just this. It's just that. Well, I got to thinking, you know, from a historical perspective, uh, when you look at things that went down in other countries and revolutionary movements in other countries. And that's, by the way, what I feel like is going on in this country, is we're in the middle of a revolutionary movement. The mass just happens to be, and COVID uh, just happens to be one of the tools that these globalist elites who are trying to um, get a tighter grip on the way uh, people live their lives, not just in America, but throughout the world, the, the World Economic Forum is kind of the leader on this, and I, this is not my words, it's theirs. Klaus Schwab tells us that he's the founder and president of the World Economic Forum that, quote, the COVID pandemic represents a rare but narrow window of opportunity to reflect, reimagine, and reset our world. And he's talking about this global reset is going that they have planned is going to impact every industry and every facet of our lives. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't want Klaus Schwab at the World Economic Forum telling me how I should live my life. And so I'd look at the mask as just uh, a key symbol, a key symbol. If you look at it by itself and its substance, it might not be that big a deal, but it is a huge symbol of obedience to what they're trying to get us to do. And I feel like if we don't push back pretty soon, it's going to be too late. And what's going to come down the pike next? Mandatory vaccines, I think we, you can almost bank on that. And, but who knows what else? And so I felt like, uh, you know, a- after seeing people walking around in the grocery stores and whatnot, and so few of them, so few, Chris, I'm estimating 2%, and this is in Georgia where I live, a state where it's not even a law. Our governor, our legislature has not passed any law or nor any executive order forcing people uh, or businesses to require masks. Now, the businesses, the grocery stores in particular, all have signs up saying uh, you must put on a mask to enter our store, but they don't enforce it. I don't know that they're even legally able to enforce it. I guess they could if they wanted to. But I, for one, have been not have not put on a mask yet, and I have not been told to leave a single store. Um, so why are people following it? 
they either believe the lies that the mask works, or they're just afraid to go against the grain, maybe afraid to be confronted by some mask wearer and asked, you know, why are you putting me in danger or something like that? I don't know, but I feel like whatever the reason, now is the time to push back. Well, that's right. And, you know, my wife and I were just talking. She's an RN. She's a nurse. And when this all broke last year, uh, they were talking about, well, uh, the masks don't really work. This is in her team meetings, okay, at the hospital. The masks don't really work, but if nurses feel more comfortable wearing the mask, then go ahead. But it wasn't required, and, and again, by the old, by their own admission, the mask was not an effective way to prevent uh, contraction with the virus. Dr. Fauci said that early on. Then he changed right. his mind, and then now it's become a mandate, and it's become a symbol. Uh, and then, of course, if you're following the science, think of my own case. Uh, I got COVID in December. I recovered. Um, and so I should be, I am immune. And so following the science, I can neither acquire the virus anymore or give it. Even at a three-month minimum, which I believe it's much longer, I've talked to people who have had the virus a year ago, and they've been exposed to other people that have had it, and they were, they've been immune. So... You know, none of this is logical. This is this is all hysteria at this point, and it's it's a fear factor with people. But I want to talk about, and I, I'm so glad that you brought this up about going into a grocery store because, you know, I'm the type of person that I like to go out and talk to strangers. You know, so when I'm in the line and I like to, when I see kids and families and I like to talk to them, we can't talk to each other. We got this muzzle on. They can't see whether I'm smiling or frowning. Uh, we can't, you know, I'm mumbling, so what, you know, this guy, this strange guy's mumbling at me. You can't really hear me, right? So we don't communicate. Everybody's in their own little world, isolated. So I, as a Christian minister, I'm saying, and as a Christian, if we're to be the salt and light of the world, we're to demonstrate the love of Christ unto others, then we should be communicating with them, especially when you're seeing people, they look down, they look depressed, they look dejected, they're isolated, they're alone, even though they're in the store, and then they're running from people. They don't want to be, you know, you could be infected. It, I mean, it's madness when you think about it. So, again, you know, my own situation, the, the, you know, in my, my family, we've all, we've had it, we've gotten over it, we can't contract it nor spread it, according to the science. But it's not about science. It becomes about control and manipulation. I like what you've talked about here. You're really striking a chord. Leo, what I find is challenging, when I talked about having pastors come on this program, I know that some of those pastors are constrained by the protocols of their own denominations, even though they may feel the same way that you and I do. And they're, they're, they're fed up. I talked with one pastor. He actually resigned. He said, I got so fed up with having to deal between the two. Half the congregation in fear and hysteria, and the other... Uh, other half of the congregation saying, you know, why are we still doing this? Why are you keeping us divided? Why aren't we having our Bible classes? Why aren't we gathering? He said it was insane after a while. So he said, I've resigned. I've gone into an independent ministry. I think as I go around and talk to my pastors around the state, I'm going to find similar stories. So not only are the churches hurting, the leaders of those churches, the clergymen are hurting, and they're, they're in an impossible situation. So when I bring up to them, they said, don't even get me started about COVID-19, because I have to face it every week between two different worldviews concerning this thing. Your thoughts? Well, isn't that just convenient for people who are trying to make a power grab on the world stage? And 
you know, turn America, the, the largest and oldest constitutional republic uh, on the earth right now, uh, America has long been the one um, barricade, the one obstacle towards this, this drive towards global governance. And so what better way uh, to, to, to dismantle, to destroy, to weaken uh, that one um, free constitutional republic that wants to remain independent, at least it did under independently sovereign under Donald Trump, things are changing now, but what better way to weaken it than to divide the people? Mm. Chris, I've lost close friends over this. We, uh, my family and another family, we have been friends for 20 years. We were best friends. When this all came up, uh, my friend wanted to be a mask wearer. He thought it helped. Um, and we've since kind of patched up our relationship, but our two wives still don't talk to each other. Um, so it, it really is a divisive thing, and I feel like that was by design uh, to bring in this global reset, which would never would have been a lot, would never would have been. Um, uh, a, they would have never been able to do that with a strong America. We're talking with Leo Holman. He is an author. He has written an article that uh, we're going to post on our website. We wanted you to read it. It's called Western Civilization is Imploding. Now is the time for all good men to make their stand. Let's talk for a minute about that, that men you know, uh, actually have a role to play here, and yet we see the emasculation of masculinity in our society, okay? And what's going on? Well, the white male is actually becoming uh, the target of everyone's animus and uh, disdain right now. Uh, you know, with the social justice movement, uh, with Black Lives Matter, you know, if you're, you know, I, I hear it from men all the time. It's like, well, the Human Resources Department, I'm listed last, uh, you know, I'm castigated in my role. Uh, I don't have enough points for uh, any kind of recognition. It's not based upon merit or how you do your job. Uh, if you show up on time, if you're faithful at work, if you uh, carry the workload of not just yourself and others, that's not the merit. The merit is some other kind of identity politics within the office. Talk to us about that, Leo. Yeah. Men have been under attack for a long time in our culture, Chris. We've, we've seen that in the entertainment industry. You know, I, I can remember even back in the 80s when they started, you know, making the, the father look like this doofus, you know, in the, in the half-hour comedy shows and whatnot, you know, Archie Bunker and what have you. Um, but they've definitely taken it to a new level um, even more recently. And um, it, it's a Marxist, it's, it's based on Marxist critical theory which is, uh, you know, part of the whole cultural Marxist movement that came out of Germany in the 1930s and 40s and ended up basing themselves here in America after World War II. And they realized that they could not bring in the Marxist utopia uh, under traditional Marxism, which, which divided people, what, along class lines. Uh, that just simply wasn't working in America, and it wasn't working in any of the Western democracies. And so they switched from this economic uh, theory, uh, which Marxism was, was mostly economic, the class warfare, you know, the rich against the poor, divide them that way. They switched from that to cultural divisions. And so they started pitting men against women. They started pitting people racially and ethnically against each other, blacks against whites. 
um, and and you see it now with the immigrant and the and the native born, and and they flood the country with immigrants to the point where the country gets all kinds of prob immigrant related problems, and then they turn on the immigrants, and you have more division. So it's just classic Marxist theory, which is divide the country up into groups, pit those groups against each other, and then you just go with classic divide-and-conquer strategies, and before you know it, you've weakened the country and you've opened the gates for the final takeover, which, in my estimation, that could be what we're looking at now with this Biden administration, which played themselves off as the more moderate Democrat. Yeah, right. Well, we all know that there's nothing moderate coming out of this administration so far. They are Marxist to the core, uh, starting with Kamala Harris. Uh, she, she actually was trained at the Rockwood Institute, which is a, a Marxist organization that trains people, uh, up-and-coming politicians. Stacey Abrams uh, was trained there, Kamala Harris, uh, the guy who ran for governor and lost against DeSantis. I don't remember his name. Andrew Gillum was his name. He, yep. he was trained there. You know, so... This is a Marxist uh, identity problem that we're dealing with here now in this country. The problem is most people don't recognize it, and so they still think they're fighting against Democrats. And so they think this is just politics as usual. Whoa, don't worry that the election was stolen. Don't worry that they're doing all these things and not even passing laws through Congress. Uh, we'll get them in 2022. Don't you worry. The Republicans will gain control of the House and Senate, and we'll be back to back to normal. No, if this is what I believe it is, there's not going to be any uh, free and fair elections in 2022. Why? Because Marxists, when the, once they gain power, uh, Chris, they don't give it up. They, they make, they literally, their entire goal is a one-party police state. A one-party police state. And so well, we've already received, that's right, we've, We've gotten alerts today that uh, they're going to be pushing nationalized elections of like uh, uh, mail-in ballots uh, in every state, like nationalizing elections. Right now, each state has its own election laws, uh, you know. And right. so, if they were to do that and push that bill through, and if the courts wouldn't object it, we'd be in a real uh, trouble, um, you know. So, we what we saw happen in Georgia. And in uh, Pennsylvania and Michigan would be nationwide, and we would begin losing uh, a, an avalanche of elections uh, because uh, it would be fraught with fraud. Quite honestly, absolutely. Uh, I truly, I think that the Republican Party will will stick around in theory, but it'll be just a paper tiger. It'll be basically controlled opposition. Uh, we already see Mitch McConnell acting like the quintessential controlled opposition uh, politician, right? He, he's there to argue a little bit uh, against the Democrats, but then when you know when the chips fall, uh, he's, you, he, he tells you whose side he's really on, right? He, he, he tells you that he's, he's not on your side, even though he may vote the right way occasionally uh, when you really need him to, to provide the leadership to really fight back against these horrific Marxist policies that were coming out of this administration. He's going to be nowhere to be found. We are talking with um, Leo Holman. He is the author of Western Civilization is Imploding. Now is the time for all good men to take their stand. The article will be up on our website. Uh, Leo, how can folks uh, contact you directly and see uh, many of your writings? They can uh, check out my website at leohoman.com. That's L-E-O, last name Holman, H-O-H-M-A-N-N. -N. 
two ends at the end of it, and um, they can follow me on Gab and also the Homan Report on Facebook. And so those are the main ways to reach out to me right now. Um, I'm hoping that I can continue writing without being deplatformed. A lot of people are being deplatformed right now from WordPress, from Facebook, Twitter. I've been my Twitter account was suspended about a week ago. Uh, I'm still on Facebook and, and I've joined recently joined Gab, so they can follow me on Gab.com. We've talked about that uh, on this program. In fact, on our website is the options for MeWe. Uh, Gab uh, Parlor is back online as to uh, its function in the coming weeks is yet to be uh, unknown, uh, whether it's going to be what it was previously. Uh, then, of course, uh, we have Rumble uh, as an exchange for uh, YouTube. And so we've encouraged our people, and, of course, our website is getting an overhaul as well. And because communication is going to be key going forward, we are seeing censorship like we've never seen in our lives. Uh, we are seeing the limitation on freedoms and civil liberties like we've never experienced. I'm in my early 60s, Leo, and I've never seen anything like this, never even heard of anything like this. And so uh, I'm in my late 50s, and I could honestly say the same thing. Sometimes I feel like I'm living the book 1984 by George Orwell. So we are in uh, a crisis of the times. There's no doubt about that. We're going to detail that in the coming weeks on this program. But we're going to also give uh, some ways in which we can be focused and purposed in how we can fight back the resistance. Let's talk about that for a minute, uh, because it does. The calamity is among us, <laughs> and uh, the political picture in Washington is is only going to become more bleak. Uh, what can we do? as uh, Christian citizens going forward? I think uh, you mentioned one thing that's critical, communication lines, keeping those lines open. Uh, there may be a time where we're no longer able to commit a, communicate digitally on these platforms. But what does that mean? If, if we're living isolated lives where we don't even know who our neighbors are, we don't really know who our church members are, uh, then, then we're going to be in a, in a in a world of hurt when the the hard persecution comes. We're already living in the soft persecution. Uh, I, I don't see it softening up anymore. If anything, it's going to get harder. And so, the only way to deal with that for the body of Christ is for us to be in relationship with each other. So, get out, get to know your neighbors, Christian, non-Christian, find out who they are, what are their values, and see if there's things that you can cooperate on. Um, and, and and the the other thing is we we cannot we must resist we must resist unconstitutional illegal executive orders and laws. When we when we think about men today and the challenges that they have around them, so uh, I talk to people. They say, "Well, you don't understand. You're not in the corporate world. Uh, we have these weekly or uh, every other week." a briefing by the Human Resources Department of how we should be conducting ourselves, meaning protocol of attitude and um, comportment uh, at, our, at our workplace. It, it, yeah, what is that about? I mean, I thought it was about what the job description is and following through. What's going on here, Leo? No, your friends are absolutely right. I've been told the same thing from my friends who work in the corporate world. A lot of them... Uh, who worked, uh, we have, um, 
Delta Airlines is based here in Atlanta, and so we have a lot of Delta workers around here. And that company, I'm telling you, it, they tell me it used to be one of the most beautiful companies to work for. And uh, over the last five, six, seven years, it has just become ghastly. And and these men are actually many of them retiring early just to get out of there. It is so it has become such a horrific place to work. Um, and and so this is a real thing. This is they're making it up very uncomfortable for people, especially like you mentioned earlier in the program. If you're a white male, uh, you you are really being put in some bad situations and being told to believe some things that are, are frankly lies uh, and and frankly racist. Uh, because it's these things are based completely on the color of one's skin, which we know is is not only anti-biblical, but uh, just plain wrong. Even in just a common sense, anyone with common sense can figure out that this is wrong, and um, and so you don't treat people different ways based on the color of their skin. But that's exactly what's going on, and uh, so it is real. My advice to those people is get out if you can. You know, if you're able to get out and retire early, do so. If you're young and you're not able to retire, look for a different career. Uh, if you, you may have a certain uh, wonderful skill set that you could start a, your own small business, you could uh, go to work for a smaller company. The smaller the company, typically the less rigid these uh, these um, these racist uh, HR policies are going to be. And so there, there's things that people need to start thinking about uh, for action items this year and maybe uh, have, a, have a one- and a two-year plan um, in place. That's, those are great points. Uh, again, we're talking with Leo Holman. We're going to have the article on our website. Uh, and again, the title of the, the article is Western Civilization is Imploding. Now is the time for all good men to make their stand. You know, when we talk about the threats to the First Amendment, and freedom of speech. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard was on with Tucker Carlson a few weeks ago about how alarmed she is as a Democrat, uh, uh, what she sees happening, and the totalitarianism of the times. She says, the thing to do is to keep speaking. Keep using your First Amendment rights. Don't let them shut you down and censor you. Speak your mind, speak your peace. And I could think of no better way, you know, they used to say, uh, you know, use it or lose it. Uh, my uncle, who's 96, he says, keep moving, meaning physically. If you keep moving, then you won't be in a chair and you won't be in a bed. And uh, I think that's what we need to do, Leo, is to exercise our constitutional rights. Your thoughts? Absolutely. You know, Eric Metaxas, the, the great uh, Christian writer, uh, of our, one of the great Christian writers of our day, said, what is faith? Uh, what is courage? Courage is faith in a crisis. And right now we're in a crisis. And we need to have courage. And all that courage really is, is having faith in God at this time. Thank you, Leo, for being my guest today. God bless you, and we really appreciate this article you wrote. Same to you. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. And if you missed any of our program today, you can visit us at our website at ohioca.org. Help us stay on the air here on the radio station by making a contribution of any size right there on our website, again at ohioca.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. We'll see you next week. You have been listening to News in Focus with your host, Chris Long, president of the Ohio Christian Alliance. 
To learn more about the issues that matter most to you and your family, visit online at ohioca.org. That's ohioca.org. Thank you for listening. This program is sponsored by the Ohio Christian Alliance of Akron, Ohio.